This podcast explores explicit and adult-themed content. If discussions of sex or male bondage offend you, or if you are under the age of 18, you should not continue listening to this episode or future episodes of The Bondage Gaze. By continuing to listen, you acknowledge that you are at least 18 years old and aren't offended by discussions of male bondage, sex, pornography, or other kinds of content with sexual themes. Hey guys, welcome back to The Bondage Gaze. I'm Sammy. And I'm Nat. And we are once again joined by our southern suitor, Mr. Tom. Hello. Howdy, y'all. How's it going? Swell. How have you been since last week? It has gotten chillier up here in the northern hemisphere in this part of the world where I look forward to fall and winter because I get to wear suits and not die. Well, that's good. We are all for you not dying. Wilting like a magnolia in the, on the branch. <laughs> oh, I've been watching Big Brother US and there's a housemate in that that fucking, oh, she's southern and it's like the producers are clearly getting her to throw in as many southern tropes as they can. <laughs> no one in the south talks like that. We don't even have accents. To the host, Julie, she's like, hey Julie, you're prettier than a can of fried butter beans. No one says that are, are, are fried butter beans pretty i don't i don't know i'm totally paraphrasing it's not a direct quote they're yummy but they're certainly not pretty <laughs> i don't get it i don't know exactly what she says i haven't exactly taken notes you look as tasty as grandma's apple pie <laughs> it's one of those things where people will try to do southern accent and it's just just stop yeah <laughs> all right let's get back into it so what would you consider your most dominant traits my most dominant traits would be um, I enjoy telling people what to do, specifically what to wear. I have been getting into that lately. There have been some non-suit and tie guys who have contacted me on Instagram and I have made them suit up and they'll send me pictures of them suiting up and I'll ask them, so tell me, how does that make you feel? They don't see, they don't seem to realize that I'm making a Count Rugen reference to Princess Bride, but that's okay. Yeah, I think my most dominant trait is that I enjoy being the occasion that other guys will wear a suit and tie. And and exerting that influence of, oh, Tom's going out, we have to dress up. And so, you know, that kind of unspoken rule of, why, yes, I do have a dress code. You're welcome. Is that the same way with your husband? Or is he just naturally dressed up? Well, he loves to dress up as well. And one thing that he and I enjoy doing is being out in public, dressed to the nines and so forth, knowing fully well what effect we have on each other. And everyone else just assumes that we're dressed nice, which is lovely. It's also a whole lot easier to dress in a suit and tie when you're not the only person doing it. Yeah. When you and several other people show up at a place and you were all wearing suits yeah. and ties, then you get a whole lot fewer questions and remarks because people will just assume that there's some kind of reason or event for it. And so I think to answer your question then, Sam, yeah, I think my most dominant trait is that I enjoy it when I get to make people suit up. Okay. I enjoy either telling them directly what to wear or being the occasion for their wearing it. Fair enough. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and so what do you like most about the dominance in you or other people? Um, I think for me, the dominance I find in myself is actually a relatively late coming thing because, you know, throughout my life, I associated dominance with masculinity and I associated masculinity with only one particular body type. And I assumed that it was only the really hairy, muscly muscle bears who were allowed to be dominant and the rest of us had to be submissive to that person. I had to unlearn a lot of shit when I was in my 20s. But um, it's one of those things where I assumed that because I was always the tweaky person that I had to be the sub and I had to defer 
to my husband or I had to defer to other people. And it wasn't until an exchange that I had a number of years ago in which a certain person actually let me play the Dom for a change and I loved it. And ever since then, I've been going further and further in that direction, both in my online life and in real life. So I think for me then, that kind of assumption of the finding of power in it, the assumption of power in it, the realization that this speaks to me more than the way that I used to think of myself. I think that that's what appeals to me most about the dominant side of my nature. Okay. Yeah. And what about with other people? Like, does your husband get dominant with you? Yes, he does. Though, um, usually he's the one who wants me to pick what he wears. Okay. Which is all kinds of fun. But um, I think with him, it's because I know exactly what he wants. And I enjoy being able to anticipate that without his having to tell me. This kind of Pavlovian response of, you know, being so well-trained that you understand what the person wants without their having to say it. <laughs> I think that there's something really erotic about that. And I think that that is perhaps a sub-trait of mine, wanting to understand and anticipate what the other person needs. And I enjoy that idea of somebody being so well-conditioned or so well-trained that you don't even have to tell them what you want. They just do it. They know the expectation already. <laughs> that is pretty hot. Yeah. Does this lead me to the sub-question? <laughs> okay, what are your most submissive traits? My most submissive trait is that um, I'm constantly trying to make sure that things are okay with the other person because I have a difficult time reading a person's consent. And so I feel as though I have to keep like establishing and reestablishing, is this okay? Is it okay that I'm doing this? Are you enjoying this? Because I want that assurance of, you know, making sure that I'm not like stepping over any boundaries or so forth. So I guess then my most submissive trait is that desire to please. And I suppose that connects well with my writing as well, because in my writing, I'm certainly writing about things that turn me on, but at the same time, I want other people to enjoy them. Yeah. And that's a good trait to have. Yeah. And I ask people for feedback on my stories because I want to make sure that they're enjoying them. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, these the stories aren't just for me, though uh, that's where they start. Of course, you've got to draw them from somewhere. And if you're not having fun with them, then there's going to be no point to it. It's just going to become a chore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is one frustration of mine that I do have with OnlyFans and Just for Fans. These guys can pump out these videos like several times a week and get, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of subscribers. It takes me seven to eight months to write a single story. It is painstaking and slow. And yeah. I'm putting a lot more effort into this one thing than this person is into a video and they're getting all the likes and hits from it. Yeah, I have no negative opinions about this whatsoever. No, I get that feeling because I have that feeling with a lot of things. But I think at the same time, you need to kind of have the attitude, well, you don't know what is going on behind the scenes with the other person's work. But not to say if you're not right, you probably are. I considered writing stories a few years ago and then it was like, mm, I'm not that descriptive. I don't, like I like to think I'm an intelligent man, but I'm not articulate enough to put it into words, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, it's a matter of understanding what chain of words you could put on this page to make this person produce this image in their heads. Mm, yeah. And that's tricky to do. For me, description is actually the easy part. Dialogue is the difficult part because that's like chess. Okay. This character will say this thing to this other person and you have to think, okay, where does this other character want the dialogue to go? What is their motivation? What would they sound like? What is their tone? What is their state of mind? And you'll write a dozen different lines and none of them will work. And it's dialogue is very difficult for me to write because it requires that kind of social intuition that you can only get by hearing another person talk. Yeah. And you're having to reproduce that in your head. Yeah. Yeah, that could be difficult. So something I'd like to kind of circle back to, like you mentioned something about finding it 
difficult to be able to like effectively read like other subs of like you know what if they like something or don't like something or any of that because it's like that's a recent um train of thought that i've had because like a recent session it was like with a group of guys uh you know we were thinking because we we're tying up three guys and we we're kind of coordinating um you know what kinds of tape like what colors of tape to like gag them with and and then and then so for the guy that i was tying i thought you know i thought of using my white vinyl tape which i use a lot i use a lot because it's effective and it's also not very difficult to like peel off it's nothing like duct tape or anything um so i so you know so i gagged him with that and you know we took pictures and videos and just um played around and all of that and then um when everyone was getting untied like somebody was like helping take like the vinyl tape off of him and then you know the sub just like i don't know it seemed like it like really hurt him i i think it was just something with the hair on the back of his head or something but i don't know that just freaked me out like i, I was not expecting that response like from from that tape because it's like okay like i use this tape all the time it's not really that bad um i think what happened it was just kind of like an accident of something with his you know it getting caught with his hair or something but yeah it's like and then that just kind of reminded me of how like i don't know it's like usually before i play with people just to suss them out of you know what they're into what they're not into what their pain threshold is and it's like I, I kind of do that and then i recently learned that like because i when i talk to other people about that i think people are just impatient but it's like i feel like another thing is i don't know a lot of people don't feel the need to like learn a person that much before actually playing with them because i guess they have enough of a sense to understand what you know what their deal is or something when when they do play with them but i feel like i kind of need to make an extra conscious effort i feel like i need to make an extra conscious effort to like learn about their things like that like and i feel like a big part of that is my asperger's because that makes it hard for me to read people's non-verbal cues and things like that and so i kind of need to go an extra mile to make sure that i like understand them and that i'm doing you know things that they're okay with and that they're fine with and you know that to kind of prevent those sort of things from happening um but i mean this is a group setting and all of that so you know some of the rules kind of get a little fudged with that but yeah okay it requires the kind of social intelligence that is learned yeah kind of intuition of reading people that uh you have to develop as a skill i mean granted there are probably some people who have that sense more naturally or more intuitively than other people but still it's um i imagine that in a group setting it's much more difficult because you're trying to establish some kind of flow to the action and you feel as though asking the other person is this okay is this okay is this okay that could get annoying and could get people out of the mood. Yeah, you want people to, I guess not read your mind, but you want them to kind of figure out what you want. It's the same with if you're gagged, you kind of, for me, for example, I'm a brat. So I'll often be like, yeah, untie me, untie me. But nine times out of 10, I don't want to be untied. But then at the same time, there's also that one time out of 10 that I do want to be untied. So you just, you hope people will figure you out. Yeah. Enough to give you what you want. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I am somebody that like, okay, if I'm, if somebody on recon that I haven't had much of a conversation with just kind of pops up and it's like, oh, like, you know, would you would you want to play within the next hour or something? I'm usually like, no. Like, it's like, because it's like, there's a lot of things I need to suss out. Like, number one, are you going to murder me or something like that? And then also, like, number two, like, other just, you know, like, little detailed things like that because it's like, I want good quality sessions. I don't want something just kind of thrown in like, oh, well, we're just going to do this, like, you know, down and dirty right now. It's like, and then I also just need to mentally fucking prepare for it most of the times when people do that they're usually subs so they expect me to dom and then especially like with, with doming it's like i need to get in the mood and the mindset and whatever 
before that. Like, actually, I remember in my single days, I was on Manhunt. I was talking to this guy. I vaguely remember there being some live chat kind of thing. It's like 10 years ago now. And he mentioned, you know, come over, I'll tie you to the bed, gag you. I don't think I had bondage in my profile. And the fact that this guy mentioned a gag, I was like, oh my God, like, fuck yeah. And he's like, oh, can you come tonight? And this guy was probably like an hour by train away and it was getting late. I'm like, look, I have to work tomorrow. He's like, oh, what about sometime this week? Because I'm not really free the next few days. I've got a busy few days at work. Next week's looking good though. And it was like the minute I said, can't do this week, can't do tonight, fucking left the chat and wouldn't respond to my messages. Dude, like just because I'm on here right now doesn't mean I'm instantly looking to fuck. Yeah. Plan something. Yeah, we're adults. We have to plan. And I feel like that's like a big difference between vanilla hookup culture and like kink hookup culture is, you know, for fucking, you can just, you know, like step outside right now and in 20 minutes be in somebody else's bed, like fucking them, whatever. It doesn't take that much premeditating or, or anything like that. But it's like for what we do with kink, it's like there's a lot at play with this. Like it's like we want to make sure that a person that's going to tie us up isn't going to actually like hurt us or like do anything like harmful or dangerous or anything to us like that. And then also like it just it takes, you know, preparation. It takes time. It takes, you know, all of these things that, you know, it's like you can't just jump right into it. Like, yeah, look, I mean, I don't know if, if it's the same for everyone, but for me personally, I need to, I guess, know I'm going to be tied up because I need to make sure I'm hydrated. I've eaten enough so that I'm not having low blood sugar episodes, dehydration, because then that leads to just a pounding headache and then you're instantly out of the scene. So it's not something you can just do off the cuff. I mean, maybe if it was a quick bondage session, sure. But most of us, or at least I do, I like the long-term ones, a couple hours long, you need preparation for that. To bring this to the suit and tie side of things, it takes time and effort to put on a suit and tie. I'm usually not wearing one. What? <laughs> Sam is flabbergasted. Yeah, I assumed you slept in a suit. <laughs> there are pajama suits. And there are guys who are into that, by the way. It was because I, long story short, uh, the, the reason I ended up sleeping in the suit, it was actually this one. It was uh, at the end of a conference and I was up until like 3.30 in the morning and I had to catch a 5.30 flight. So I just had 90 minutes of sleep and then drag myself out of the bed and shower and change into something else because this suit was not presentable. And the thing that I changed into was an outfit involving a blazer and a button-down shirt and everything like that. So I at least looked my idea decent. But anyway, there are a lot of suit and tie guys who want to live in this like Downton Abbey fantasy of, you know, wearing a suit and tie 24-7. That is a thing. And it's like, no, it's not practical. No, it would be lovely, but... And there are some suit and tie guys who have like 30 some odd suits and they could actually make that happen. I am not one of those people. I have four plus the play suits. I actually don't count that in my regular rotation. Well, it's like that. It's like that. And I mean, I like suits, but it's like, I also like pajamas and I also like, you know, like nice, like casual wear, like collared shirts that aren't necessarily dress shirts. And I like, yeah, it's like, like I, I like, ver I like variety. I like different kinds of things like that. So yeah. I think with the whole wet and messy thing, I only want it to happen on my own terms. I do not want to be like trying to bleach the bathroom wearing a suit and tie and I get bleach on my suit. That is not a thing that I want to happen. God, no. And so, you know, to get back to uh, Sammy's point, I'm always flabbergasted at how unrealistic some of these people are. They just assume that we live in this kind of fetish cocoon where we are always two steps away from whatever our fetish gear of choice is and 15 minutes away from a session and we could just drop everything and do whatever. And sure, that would be nice, but we're adults and we have jobs. <laughs> if you could just Spider-Man it and have your fetish gear on under your regular clothes and just hop on the 
screen, like ripping whatever you have. <laughs> wow. And also, you know, joys of living in the part of the country where I live in. At least you have trains. We don't. We have to fucking drive. Yeah, I saw the train lines you guys have. I can't fathom that. Completely unrelated historical tangent that has everything to do with the automotive industry. Okay. They have a well-funded lobby that has been at work for over 120 years dismantling the U.S. railroad system so that people will buy more cars. America. Yep. It sounds like us. Yeah. I mean, there are some areas here that don't, but that's like rural. And then there's still like coaches for those areas. Yeah. But like anywhere that's city or town living has train access. Yeah. Public transport. Well, yeah. Buses are everywhere, but trains are pretty prominent too. Yeah. And I mean, and and this is the kind of thing that even kind of just explains like how like the politics in America are so fucking all over the place because you know without this kind of access to other areas people just get very closed off and like isolated and develop their own little weird cultures and habits and beliefs and whatever and nothing around them is going to challenge them because you know they can't go anywhere or it's hard to go anywhere or you know they're just in this little these little bubbles like all over this big ass country and and so yeah it's like so you know when these people come out of the woodwork from crazy conspiracy theories or something it's like that's that's why like but also i think being the spokesperson for the southeastern united states the thing is people in quote-unquote bluer parts of the united states like to write off the south they want us to secede again and there's this kind of we'll be better off without you attitude and my response to that is there are queer people in the south there are people of color in the south there are progressives in the south this is our home we belong here yeah we're trying to do the work that y'all don't want to be bothered with because y'all are in your magical blue bubbles where you don't have to explain yourselves and you don't have to worry about the fact that your conservative neighbor is flying a Trump flag and talks about guns. So I think I get really frustrated when this actually kind of ties back to the whole suit and tie fetish thing. I get frustrated when people in elite cities like London and New York and Los Angeles and even Chicago will have this kind of smugness towards those of us who've lived our entire lives in really homophobic places. And they'll look at us as what we're insane and it's like, this is our home. I would not do well in a big city because I don't know how to yeah. act with other humans in a big city. Also, they're very rude and many of them don't dress very well, but I'm not an elitist. But yeah, it's just like, I think it's important for us not to write off queer communities that live in rural places or queer communities that live away from these kind of metropolitan areas because um, that's a part of our identity too. And I'm not giving up being a Southern person just because someone in, in New York wants me to. Queer or not, you shouldn't be writing off anyone based on where they live. Yeah. I mean, look, I've obviously heard a lot of unfavorable things about the South as an Australian. Would I choose to live there? Absolutely not. Purely for the fact that I would be scared for my safety as a gay man and props to anyone who would live there. If I was not a gay man, I could see it being that homely kind of welcoming environment, but it's not that case for everyone. Yeah, like that's a a heterosexual privilege of like, you can go to some isolated small town and not have to face what we would face. I mean, remember you talking about you and Brandon, I think you were traveling to Sydney or something like that and you guys stopped at like some town in between and both of you were just kind of like, okay, am I going to get hate crimed here? Like, you know, it's like, because there was that like discomfort of like, okay, we don't know how gay friendly or ungay friendly this town is. We don't know. Yeah, it's like, like, we don't know how well we pass here. You know, we might be able to pass then wherever we live, but this is a new environment that, you know, people are probably going to see something that we don't, you know, we don't know that we're 
showing or anything like that. And then, yeah, and it could potentially become dangerous. Oh, I think it's in the back of every gay person's mind. No matter where you go, even if it's in a case of an American, even if it's a blue state, a blue city, whatever, you have to have that in the back of your mind. Like, are these people okay? Am I safe? Can I make public displays of affection? Yeah. yeah. I get very uncomfortable with public displays of affection because I know people get homophobic just by seeing two gay men embrace. You know, my husband and I have been to bars in big cities like Atlanta even where we did not feel comfortable because a bunch of straight idiots would start dog whistling at us because we were dressed to the nines and they weren't. It's happened several times and we would leave because we would genuinely not feel safe. And sure, maybe that's tracing over into some kind of classist assumptions about, you know, being able to dress a certain way in, in a purportedly casual place. But there was also kind of the instance that I'm thinking of is one where uh, we were trying to go to um, one of those fancy cocktail bars where it's like a speakeasy and you have to have like a password to go in, but they were not open yet. So we actually went next door to uh, a place that turned out to be a sports bar to get a drink and wait for the place to open. And there were a whole bunch of football dude bro- who wouldn't leave us alone and we ended up leaving our beers unfinished at the bar and just leaving because we did not feel safe there there was this kind of mob mentality that went into it where you know one of them would say something to us and another would join in and another would join in. so it's yeah i think uh as queer people we are always having to look over our shoulders in these places no matter how metropolitan the place seems to be there's always that lingering possibility that you've bumped into the wrong person yeah yeah i mean like one thing Thing where that has really stood out to me is so over the past year uh kinkmate 13 um he goes by danny on the podcast like he has visited chicago several times and like i find it interesting like how quickly he adapted to like holding hands with me or like another guy like in the group or something like that like walking around in chicago because like i've even asked him like it's like okay you're from missouri like would you do that there and he immediately is like no like it's like i wouldn't do that in the small town that I'm from I wouldn't do that in St. Louis like I wouldn't do that anywhere in Missouri but it's like you know it's like I think he just immediately kind of sees how like openly gay friendly Chicago is and is immediately doing that and it's also sad just knowing that this is obviously something he likes to do because he does it so naturally but he just doesn't have that option like where he lives that's what it was like when I visited Chicago that you know Nat knows this because I spent a good many nights in Chicago in the Halstead area I wanted to go there. I really didn't want to visit other parts of Chicago because, you know, yes, museums and all that, I'll I'll see those things later. The thing that I was really craving was a place where I could be an openly gay man. That's not something I have here. And people did point out how you were dressed, but not in an alienating kind of way. Yeah. You know, there were people on the street in tutus, and here's a person in a suit and tie. Moving on. <laughs> see, I noticed back to sort of the public displays when I was with my first boyfriend. So this was 2009. I was 17. First time we were together was in Sydney so a couple hours north of me and we weren't really doing anything but we saw other gay people holding hands it was very it's a very inclusive area like a big city and then a couple weeks later we're down my way 20 minutes down south and I imagine it would have been the same if we stayed in my suburb yeah we were at this beach we were probably being a little it was probably a little inappropriate we were just kissing and we just hear some fucking guy go oh you've gotta be fucking joking you 
fucking queer cunts. And that's always just stuck in the back of my mind. It's like, yeah. you don't know who's going to go crazy on you. Yeah. I mean, in my hometown in Texas with my first boyfriend, I remember we just walked maybe a block, like a residential block holding hands. And we weren't really paying attention to like other people or anything like that. But he lived, he was living in like a two story, ha- he was renting a room in a two story house and his landlords were gay. Um, and, Like they, they also lived there. And one of them was able to see us like from the second story window us walking down the street and then he said like okay every car that passed you guys slow down like to like basically like gawk at you for like at least like a second or something and then drive off and it's like and then just like thinking about that it's like okay yeah and then that's like my hometown <laughs> it's like we weren't doing anything you know anything crazy we we're just holding hands like in a block and like people just like couldn't handle that like just leave people the fuck alone yeah evidently that's a difficult thing to do yeah <laughs> I, I feel like this theme comes up a lot <laughs> in this season. Well, we're all gay men. We've all been persecuted for being gay men. Some people on the show have been attributed to other minority groups and have sadly dealt with shit on the street and unfortunately in the gay community. So it's something that we've all experienced. It's important to bring this up because I feel like since things are a little bit more progressive now, it's easy for people to just, okay, like get like kind of arrogant and be like, okay, well, we're done. Like there's no more homophobia. Everything's fine or whatever. And it's like I think it's important to like know these kinds of things still happen I don't think that's at least not here that's really something that's expressed in the gay community but I see it with straight people they're like oh it's so easy to be gay now and it's like well sure on the surface it may look like that we've got our marriage equality there's every show has like gay people included like oh my god we're included how dare they (laughs) but it's like are you scared of walking down the street with your partner are you worried about like moving into a new area and being like to the neighbours yeah we're a gay couple have you had someone fucking try to get you fired from your job purely because you're gay it's happened to me twice 21st century it's happened to me twice so homophobia still definitely exists yeah i think to your point sam our popular culture and our political discourse has moved in a progressive direction but it has also deceived us into thinking that we're more progressive than we really are yeah and by we here i mean not only the straight community who of course are all too happy to pretend that they're not homophobic but also the queer community who are all too happy to pretend that they're not racist who are all too happy to pretend that we're not transphobic. There's a lot of transphobia in the straight in the suit and tie community. Yeah. A lot of it. There are a lot of guys in the suit and tie community who are biphobic. Yeah. And there are also a lot of guys in the suit and tie fetish community who are also bi. So it's one of those things where I think being a part of a persecuted group does not give you empathy and it certainly does not give you a free pass. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. As a gay man, I wouldn't want someone to give me a pass just because I'm gay. Like that doesn't make me free from a accountability. No. I will hold other gay people accountable for their actions. It's just the same as I would a straight person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this conversation went to a place. Always does. But it was a good place and it's a place that that needs to be mentioned because, you know, I think this is something that you've both touched on before in previous episodes of the podcast. Being a queer person is one thing. Being a kinky queer person also puts you in even smaller of a niche. Yeah. In which you're having to explain yourself in ways that are, frankly, they're very personal and very invasive. You know, vanilla people don't have to explain their 
sex lives in the way that we do. My husband and I were fortunate enough to be, you know, a couple that happened to meet in an online queer kinky space. It was one of the old Yahoo groups. Yes, there were Yahoo groups devoted to suit and tie fetishism. This is also how long ago this was. <laughs> and we have had to kind of devise a version of our story that is palatable to our straight and vanilla friends. Because if we told them we met on a suit and tie fetish website, there would be a whole lot of explaining to do and it would be very invasive very quickly. <laughs> so we've had to kind of make up a more palatable vanilla version of the story that is not, it's not that it's inaccurate, but it's very incomplete. Yeah. And I think that is true of many queer kinky couples as well. We have to kind of present a palatable version of ourselves even to other queer people. Yeah. I mean, like most of my boyfriend's like friend group here are straight people. And it's like straight people. It's like he doesn't feel comfortable saying that they're completely vanilla, but it's like, I mean, let's just assume that they're, they're vanilla because he's not gonna engage in that part of their sex lives. Right. And yeah, it's like, so it's it's funny just considering what a kinky couple we are. We met on Recon, we connected through kink and then, but yeah, like we need to give them the, the PG Disney version of how we met. Like, yeah. Well, now I'm curious, would you guys like to share the PG versions of how you guys met your respective boyfriend and husband? The PG version of how I met my husband is we met online and we kind of leave it. It's like, cause that must've been pre-apps and things. So you can't say, oh, it was on Scruff or whatever. Like, cause that was probably before Scruff. <laughs> it's like, cause at least my boyfriend, like, I think that's what we said. It's like, we said Scruff or what, I don't know, whatever kinds of apps are like that. Like, And see, we met before those apps. So we can't even say that. We say we met on Yahoo. And then I'll just devise the brief explanation of gay men had to come up with alternate ways of meeting one another online, which is true, but not in the way that I mean it. And also I explained that my husband and I met in 2008. That kind of helps because people assume correctly that 2008 was a previous age of the internet when meeting on Yahoo was actually not as weird sounding as it would be today. You answered my next question, which was going to be, when did you guys meet? Brandon and I have not a kinky meet, but we have our own little, I don't know how to put it. There's sort of a cheekiness about it, I guess, for lack of a better term, (laughs) but it's not something that we can't share to people. He was a regular customer when I was a manager in a fast food restaurant and he used to come through with his then boyfriend and one night he was drunk and told me he loved me and then we connected like a year later courtesy of Grindr this was 2013 so the apps had sort of started by that point but yeah there's always that little fun story to share with people oh yeah he came through with his boyfriend and told me he loved me (laughs) (laughs) love at first sight Okay, so is it better when other guys uh, wear the clothing you like or when you wear it? Yes. When I tell people suits and ties are my fetish, that is what I mean, as in suits and ties have to be involved for me to have any interest whatsoever. But it's a whole lot hotter when the other person is also wearing it. Yeah. Okay, does comfort ever come into it? Like, is it because you feel comfort in your suit? You love the way it feels? Okay, so this is getting into the whole feeling exposed thing. So I'll try to keep this story brief, but uh, I was bullied in middle school and high school by, you know, homophobic jocks. And there was a long time in my life when I never set foot in the gym for precisely that reason. That's a whole other thing. And I had body image issues as well that came from that. But anyway, I noticed I would look forward to times in high school and in middle school when we had to dress up professionally to give like presentations and so forth. Because number one, it turned me on and I was starting to figure that out that that was a thing. And number two, I noticed that the same homophobic jocks who bullied me felt so uncomfortable in their shirts and ties. They would like be tugging at the collar, (laughs) complaining about their shoes and so forth and shifting and fidgeting and everything. 
everything. And there was a kind of thrill that came with knowing that I felt powerful and masculine wearing this clothing that they fucking hated. <laughs> and I really, really loved that. And how um, watching this other person just grow so uncomfortable, like they were having an allergic reaction to what they were wearing just because mommy told them to wear it. And I've just loved that because I was like, this is your fucking kryptonite and I am into it. <laughs> I mean, I just want to use this against you. So I think I had a kind of dominant mean streak long before I knew that it was a dominant mean streak because I really wanted to see these people who hated me. I wanted to see them feel discomfort and I wanted to see them feel humiliation, especially wearing the same garments that made me feel powerful. So that, that struck a deep chord with me. And I think that that's why I really don't feel exposed when I'm wearing a suit and tie. It feels like a kind of armor. To me, this feels perfectly comfortable and it fits and I can move freely in it. Oh, okay, maybe not like do backflips and stuff like that, but I'm not going to do backflips anyway. <laughs> and yeah, I think that's why the comfort thing feels different than it probably does to other people. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and then, I mean, it's kind of something like you're sort of the master of like a different kind of domain with this. So you might not be physically big and strong and whatever that all these like, I assume more jockey guys kind of were, but then, you know, when it came to dressing up, you were kind of, you had the upper hand because you kind of, you probably understood it on a different level. You probably, you know, you enjoyed it when they didn't, you know, yeah, it, it kind of gave you strength while it sort of weakened them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, I guess like a good sort of role reversal type of thing. Right. Turning the tables, which I think is a running theme of this whole conversation. Yeah. So you answered the question of, so how exposed do you feel when wearing a suit compared to other types of outfits? And then, yeah, like that was specifically, you know, derived from our episode with Mike. Yeah. His um, view on that is is quite different because he feels very exposed and revealed like going out in a suit. Like he even talked about like he wouldn't even want to wear a suit or other people to wear suits for his wedding, his own wedding. Like because the, the whole thing just kind of stimulates him so much. Like I mean, it's certainly stimulating to me and overexposure. Uh, well, I don't really get overexposure because there are not a lot of guys who actually wear suits and ties where I work. But I do wear at least yeah. a laser of a tie to work several times a week. Um, that is just my colleagues have come to expect it of me. So I think because I've turned it into a part of my weekly routine, I'm able to kind of compartmentalize it and say, you know, this is this is suiting up for work so I can kind of minimize the low hum of libido that's constantly in the background. And then when it's a full suit and when I turn the single Windsor into a double Windsor and wear one of the bigger knots and everything like that, and when I'm wearing the sheer socks and so forth, you know, there are certain elements of the suit and tie attire that I can bring out specifically for play and that's what cues me into a particular mindset. Yeah, it's like, and that's what's funny. I don't know, with people kind of feeling like exposed like that in it because it's like, I feel like, you know, there's that, but then there's like, you know, kind of like what you say of like the guys in the wild like wearing a suit, like of you know, it's, it's like not even a thing for them and it's, you know, probably because obviously they don't, they I mean, they might, but they probably don't necessarily see it the way that we see it because yeah it's like it's like because that's something i think about like when i see especially other kingsters who they're not necessarily suit guys um like suits aren't necessarily their things but like you know they can wear suits and you know even hit all the right marks that i kind of like and everything but like i don't know it's like it doesn't phase them at all because like they don't pervert it the way that i sort of pervert suits and all of that so it feels like they're immune to the thing that turns you on in a way <laughs> yeah it's like like they like they understand suits kind of like on a similar level as 
I do as far as like, you know, they know how to wear a suit. They know, you know, what looks good and what to pair what with what and how, you know, how it looks and, you know, just everything. But yeah, but they don't have that connection to it that I have. So it's, you know, like maybe on some level, they don't really understand how they they're probably being sexualized, like for wearing that or yeah, it's like, or, you know, obviously they're not shy or feeling exposed about wearing a suit because it, that's not necessarily how they understand them. It's just a funny kind of realization I had that it's like, okay, yeah, it's like people can wear suits without without perverting them and, you know, all that they are and stand for and everything. But yeah, it's like, so what seems to be appealing about a tied up businessman scenario? I think for me, it's the um, subversion of power and it's heightening the constriction that the suit and tie already represents. So even if a suit and tie is comfortable to me, I understand that for most people, this is something that this is feeling that this is clothing that feels restraining. And so putting him in bondage on top of that adds a whole other layer of constriction and restriction. And then of course, they're subverting the power the suit and tie itself represents, turning of the tables, the humiliation. These are all themes that we've really touched upon. Yeah. And it's like something that really stood out to me like recently was I follow several screen caps accounts on Instagram. Um, people who either post screen caps of a movie or TV show or, or video clips or something like that of particularly men in suits like bound and gagged. And yeah, it's like, and then that's what made me think of like, yeah, like this is like a very specific thing that like people do. Like it is like a very active thing that people pursue and, you know, and enjoy and, you know, and do that with, cause it's like, I, these are several different accounts like um, that people make. And then obviously there's like the people that I know more personally who tend to like those kinds of things and all of that. And yeah, it's like, I, I, I guess it does, you know, it, do, it does relate to that sort of implicit um, power imbalance and everything. And um, so the next question, because we already kind of just talked about the power imbalance. So the, the very last question is, um, and I think this is something I've written about on Instagram like a little bit of a while ago. But so why do you think that um, quote unquote businessman is the ultimate go to character slash scenario for men in suits? This is getting to a topic that I think will probably strike a controversial chord with many of the suit and tie fetishes, but <laughs> go there anyway, because this is actually the theory that I think is correct. The suit and tie is no longer really a current piece of clothing. It's a historical costume. Oh. So there's this element of nostalgia in the suit and tie fetish community in which guys are pining for the days when men were men and they'd be used to dress like men. And it's always so stupid. Nostalgia is poisonous and that kind of nostalgia for an era in which we could not fully be queer people is stupid. And I don't think I need to go too much further into that. But anyway, so I think then the suit and tie, as the world grows more casual, as the suit and tie itself becomes a more casual thing in which the menswear, you know, the, the cis straight menswear bros are mixing the suit and tie with streetwear and all these other elements. And they're coming up with genuinely cool combinations with it. Whereas the suit and tie fetish guys are very much dressing in the mode of 1998. Yeah. 1998 executive realness. So I think then when I say that the suit and tie should be understood, the suit and tie fetish is essentially a fetish for a historical uniform. So I think then to answer Nat's question, when we have this icon of the businessman in the suit and tie bound up or interrogated or put into a sexually compromising situation, the whole reason it works is that we understand that the suit and tie conveys this kind of heteronormative respectability. And that heteronormative respectability dates back to 1998 or 1898 
or 1798, always on the 98s. But the thing is, they're trying to get back to an era that they feel more represented yeah. their sensibility. And they're kind of deliberately reading that era in a queer fashion, even though that era was probably much more repressive for queer people than our own. Does that all make sense? It's basically a historical reenactment. I agree to an extent. I wouldn't call it historical because there are obviously definitely still people day to day in their day to day life that do wear suit and tie all the time. Yeah. Of Back in, I guess, the 50s, that was pretty much the only thing men wore. It was, I guess, athletic gear when they were working out and then a suit and tie if they weren't. So, yeah, it is definitely a dying outfit. So, yeah, I mean, the thing that makes me ask this question is when you look at any sort of particularly captured guys, but I, I mean, I think a lot of male bondage from that generation, most of the times when there's a sub wearing a suit, like he's going to be called or referred to as like a businessman or something like that. Cause it's like, I feel like that is like a very catch-all kind of way of understanding a man in a suit, even though, you know, various types of men wear suits for work or, you know, or whatever other reason. Yeah. It's like, I, I mean, I do see somewhat of an appeal for specifically, I don't know, for specifically attacking a businessman or something like that. It's like, I feel like, especially with the level of capitalism and all that corrupt, like kind of bullshit and everything that's sort of happening, at least in American culture and everything is there kind of seems to be like a little bit of like a revenge fantasy for the businessman, for the Wall Street people, for, you know, that whole kind of thing. But I, I, I don't I don't think anybody who has that tied up businessman fantasy is necessarily going for that. But I mean, yeah, like I feel like that, that could be a way of interpreting it, like at least today. I think to your point, Nat, it almost doesn't matter whether they intend for it to be a kind of, uh, to use your phrase, the queer anarchy of giving the straight man hell, because that's really <laughs> what you're going for here. And yes, I've read all those wonderful essays that you wrote on Instagram, and that is a great phrase. But yeah, I think it's one of those things where this media doesn't have to explicitly be the queer anarchy of giving the straight man hell in order for it to be the queer anarchy of giving the straight man hell. In other words, the intention of it matters less than what it does to a person's mind, how the person is giving this a story uh, in their own head. And sure, many of them are probably not thinking about the dynamics of, you know, overturning the corporate capitalist class and doing so by giving the businessmen hell, but it's there. It's Plus there's that trope of the high-powered businessman that has all this control at work, so he needs to relinquish that control, so he's hiring dominatrixes and you find the, and you always find, the wife always finds the businessman tied up in his office and ball gagged or getting whipped. <laughs> you know, replace the dominatrix with queer gay man, you know, it becomes a complete reproach of what he thinks of as, as his masculinity. Yeah. It's funny because because like recently I've even had a conversation about like I don't know it's funny because it seems like like it seems like men just collectively queer or not like want to be submissive in some way and I think it's just because there's that whole because the whole thing is just like a subversion of that and so they just kind of crave that a lot more like yeah it's like and then I feel like a big part of it is that it's like okay these men with all the money and power and control and whatever like that it's like they just desperately just want to be like a fucking sub and like for somebody to like not respect them the way everybody else kind of does and not treat them the way everybody else does and because it's just so novel to them like a part of that also points to the fact that being able to voluntarily be a sub is a privilege yeah because if you can give up that control and control the moment when you give up that control then that implies that you are in a position where you feel safe and unthreatened by giving the other person
person that control. In other words, I get the sense that, I mean, you know, I am a white male presenting gay man. I have a great deal of privilege that a person who presents differently or a person of a different skin color would not have. And so I think then this is, I think, a theme that some of y'all that y'all have touched on in a few of your episodes, how this form of kink of bondage and submission and so forth tends to be very white and tends to be very male because it feels like it's by and for a particular population of people who enjoy a great deal of control and privilege in ordinary life and have the control and privilege to be able to give those things up when they wish. Yeah. It's like, because like, I can only imagine being, you know, being a person of color, being all of that. It's like the vulnerability of being sub, of being submissive could be very dangerous. It could, you can, it can lead into like very, you know, very dicey paths and everything. And that, and then, yeah, and then that's part of how, you know, that kind of comes with voluntarily submitting does come with privilege because it's like, you're, you're used to things being safe and kind of catering to you and all of that. Like, absolutely. That was a very good way of putting it. Now we have a question that has become a semi-regular one just because why not? So donut or bagel? The answer is bagel, sesame with plain cream cheese toasted. Okay. I think you might be the first person to pick the bagel. Finally a bagel answer. I know. I think it's because to get back to the whole sweet tea conversation, when you're surrounded by sugary, sweet shit, you want something that's not. <laughs> that is very fair. Uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of sweets where, where you live. I, I know there are where I live. <laughs> no, Southern food is delicious, but we do not need this much sugar. Stop. It, it just makes me think of the, the, the Simpsons when I, I forgot what Homer is eating and he's like, sweet, sweet, sweet. <laughs> like it's like burning his time. I mean, look, I'm not going to turn down a donut, but given the preference, it's a bagel. Cream and holes. <laughs> Every gay man's favorite things. Well, most gay men. Well, there's also, you know, donuts filled with custards. So there you go. True. So it just depends whether you're after that sugary goodness or that salty goodness. <laughs> so do you have any questions for us? Sure. Uh, so my main question is, most of my kink experiences happen in my head. As in, I'm a very cerebral person. I don't really have much of a queer community where I live. I've never really lived in a place where there are a lot of queer people at once. And I've certainly have not lived in a place where there are a lot of kinky queer people at once. So most of my life as a queer kinky person has been with my husband or in my head as in through conversations with other guys or through consuming media online. My question to you both is, do you think of yourselves as more cerebral in the way that you think of your kink or do you enjoy actually living it in real life? To what degree does fantasy play a role in the way you think of your kink? Coming out with the tough ones. Yeah. I think it is a little bit of both. I find you've got to, you've got to experience it. Well, personally, I feel I've got to actually experience it to get the full enjoyment of it. But there is definitely also that fantasy but then also at the same time, there's fantasy of things that are realistically going to happen. Like if I'm home alone, I'll think about the times where my husband might hogtie me or the times he has hogtied me. So in that regard, I don't have to use my imagination, at least not for the getting off part. There's always the looking forward to things and thinking, oh, like maybe he'll do this. Oh, it'd be great if he did that. But for the getting off part, it's experiencing it or thinking of things I have experienced or know that I will experience. Yeah, for me, I would say that it, I mean, it's definitely both. Like something that I kind of realized, I mean, I've been kind of like, at least as far as like play and um, stuff like that, I've been like a, in a little bit of a slump um, just because 
because I haven't I haven't been doing as much like I haven't been meeting as many like new guys like to play with I um my boyfriend and I have we both I, I feel like from COVID and everything like became very self-sufficient with like we, like we we will find our own ways of kind of pleasing ourselves without having to rely on the other which is good but also bad so it's like yeah it's like you know so there's been a little bit of that like the past couple of months and then something I kind of noticed like he and I played you know just the two of us for the first time in a while um just a few days ago and it was something that I mean and not only sexually satisfied me but then I also noticed like you know in a way it kind of cleared my head in a way that I was back to you know thinking creatively of like because it's like I do I'm I'm a creative I do a lot of creative kink things I write stories I draw I do analyses I do all of these different things like that and when I was in that slump my head was not going there with like fantasizing with being able to write a story with being able to do any of that I mean for for me I do kind of need a fantasy to get off and you know and I I would have just a very basic kind of fantasy that I learned to kind of go to when I need to like get off but like you know it's like it's not really that fulfilling all the time because it's always nice to like have a new fantasy and you know like a new kind of thing like that a lot of the times my boyfriend and I play we like incorporating something like okay I just kind of had this idea for a scenario or an outfit or something like that that we want to do and you know and then we kind of you know find a way to like you know enact that in some way or another so you know it's like so I feel like we kind of need both you know we kind of need the fantasy and the cerebral part in order to get to you know the physical part and and you know and I feel like it kind of works the other way around as well so yeah I feel like those two spheres are very intermingled like with me I gotta say your slump is my it still shits all over my regular so <laughs> but also I can acknowledge that I'm so fucking fortunate to have a hobby that ties me up yeah it's like it, it, it just gets weird like you know this is the first um this is the first kinky relationship I've been in this is the first open relationship I've been in and so I mean this is something that it's like I I love what we have and how it is but I mean yeah it's like but I mean that's kind of an issue that we keep saying that like we need to address of like you know it's like okay it's great that we have the freedom and ability to you know meet up with and play with other guys but then it's also like okay but then like you know we are still in a relationship with each other and we still you know we still have to satisfy each other and fulfill each other in some way and if one of us is kind of going through a thing we kind of need to be there for one another and all of that um which I think we're both kind of learning but yeah I think a part of my own dissatisfaction with things is that it feels as though other people get to experience kink or fantasy in real life all the time and I think that's in part because of social media the kinky side of Instagram creates this sense that everybody's just out having time in their lives all the time and it's simply not true and so I wonder to what degree are people really living in their heads and to what degree are they really living in life yeah because for many of us who are not in places where a lot of people wear suits and ties or for many of us who are not in places where there are a lot of weird kink people who are into the specific things that we're into we kind of have no choice but to live in our heads yeah it's a survival strategy in a world that uh doesn't give us a whole lot of material to work with yeah it's like and then i mean there are different degrees because it's like we have friends who it seems like they're always living their best life like because they're always posting shit or they're going to kink events and they're meeting different guys and they're trying different gear and they're doing all these things like that and then I think like the minute things kind of slow down for them where that kind of stuff isn't happening they just kind of crumble and yeah. you know and then yeah it's like and it's like I mean I, I totally understand why that happens but yeah it's like but it's like to other people who 
have a lot less action or fulfillment or something like that. They're kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's like, it must be nice to, you know, be doing that much shit. And then, you know, and then, yeah, like reach this, you know, the slump or something like. Yeah, I think we all just kind of, we all have those people we kind of, I don't want to say look up to, but we look at their life and think, wow, like you have it all. But then that person is looking at someone else thinking the same thing. I actually had a conversation with someone the other day who was feeling really down about someone just ignoring them. And I didn't want to be mean to them, but I wanted to sort of get a message across that like, I'm going to tell you now, this person's not doing it intentionally. And I'll tell you because you've done the same thing to me. And I know it's not intentional, but like we all, and I'm, I will be the first to admit, I'm probably the most guilty person of this ever. Like you get in your own head, you think you only think about your own pain and you just, you think people are out to get you. You think everyone else has got it's a better life. Yeah. When in reality, we've all got our own dramas, shit's going on behind the scenes, but we don't put that on social media because we want to present this polished image of ourselves. Yeah. Well, I've, I kind of don't, but my blooper reel is my social media from this point. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I'm thinking about, so I think we need to normalize in our social media interactions with other people, especially kinky people who are, you know, really desperate for our attention. I've gotten into the habit of telling people, look, I've seen your message I can't get back to you right now. I will try to get back to you later. And I actually make a point of getting back to them later. It's just, um, I'm trying to normalize in my social media interactions, the idea that there are times of the day when I cannot check this. And it is not because I'm ignoring you. It is because I'm doing something in which it makes no sense for me to be checking the phone, like cooking, mm. where I have to have both hands doing something else that is not involving the phone. And so I think we need to normalize that idea of um, telling people what our social media boundaries are and letting them know, you know, look, I'm not ignoring you. It's that yeah. it's not a good time for us to have this conversation. Yeah. Look, here's where my opinion is on this. And I do agree. My issue is that I find with some people, you'll send them a message and they it's like they have this thought of, well, if I can't see your message within an hour of sending it, you sending it and reply to you, I just won't, which I think is personally, I think it's fucking rude. Yes. At the end of the day, if you take a week to get back to me, cool, I don't care. You've gotten back to me. I appreciate that. I know we are different time zones. It's the people that you know will never reply. And I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect, but I try to not open messages if I, unless I know I can reply to them. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, if I can't, I'll come back to it. And there are obviously people that I will see. They've seen my message. They didn't reply. I know they will reply eventually. And I'm like, yeah, cool, no worries. It's the ones that just perpetually leave you on radar. It's like, I would never do that to you. Yeah. There are two or three guys in the suit and tie community, all of who, each of whom has an OnlyFans, and they're just like really, really smoking hot guys who have amazing wardrobes. And they're always posting these just thirst trap worthy pictures of themselves, knowing fully well that everybody in suit land is drooling over them. And I've tried striking up conversations with them and they refuse to give me the time of day. And it's like, oh, okay, okay, I get it now. You're you're not smart enough for me. That's cool. <laughs> I was gonna say, do you find that instantly turns you off them? Yeah. It's just like, oh, you, you can't be bothered rubbing two fucking syllables together. Okay. Must be nice to be that important. Continue playing your little fin dom game with people. Oh, <laughs> let's knock it. <laughs> the whole fin dom thing, unfortunately, it's prevalent in the suit and tie community because, hello, uniform of capitalism. The whole fin dom thing, I don't get. I'm not going to pay for someone's ego. Thanks. I don't have that kind of disposable income. Yeah. Look, I'm not against it, but I will circle way back to something you said really early on. And that was the whole writing a story takes eight months and you see someone post a video get a million subscribers millions of subscribers or dozens of subscribers we're not going too too far here i feel like that sometimes when i'm like making videos and it's like you you write these scripts 
you put all this editing work into it, you put it out, and then it's like crickets. But then you see some fucking guy with a face like a smacked ass, often straight ones, and hey, that's cool. Like, you want to capitalize on that too? That's fine. It's like, it's literally like the most effortless photo, and you've got like all these thirsty dudes just flocking to them. Yeah. And look, more power to them, but it does, it, it is frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. These are not the people who need this attention. They also don't need our money. No. Yeah. Actually, my biggest issue is ones that like are straight and then they're like, which one of you gay slurs are going to yeah. pay for this? Like, And then people do it like, no, why are you letting like a straight person disrespect you like that? If it was another gay person, I would, it would still be a little on the nose, but yeah. yeah. The F word is a big turnoff for me. I'm just like, I get it. There are some guys who really get off on that and who want to imp- take that word as a thing of empowerment. Fine. I'm not in that place and I don't want people calling me that and I want to be very very firm that that is not a word that I want to be in my vocabulary ever especially if it comes from a straight dude mm. you know the whole Findom thing started off with dominatrix women who were using it as a means of control over men and as a way of reclaiming a kind of control that patriarchy would have otherwise denied them so the interesting thing about Findom as a practice is that it started off as this kind of subversive re- reclamation of power and now it's just turned into a Ponzi scheme yeah. it's the latest form of gay for pay and I mean yes there are some people who are genuinely into this thing but I'm not and I'm tired of people in the suit and tie community expecting us to be into being drained when we work for a living must be nice to be showered for money just because of how you look yeah <laughs> and I mean hey if people are willingly giving up cash to these people look, you know we say don't yuck someone else's yum that's fine it just kind of it's the ones that are so in your face and yeah the cunty about it yeah <laughs> I'm indifferent to the F word if it's coming from a gay person like if it was coming from my husband while I'm tied up I wouldn't <laughs> seek it out but I wouldn't I wouldn't be offended or anything but a straight person nah sorry that is not your word yeah you do not get to say that in front of me absolutely not where does this leave us <laughs> I'm sure everyone is listening in their cars or walking to work or cleaning their house thinking oh for fuck's sake they're going to this shit again yes we are there's been three seasons of this you should know by now yeah <laughs> um, so that was our conversation with Tom thank you Tom for joining us for this it's been a pleasure bless your heart (laughs) well fuck you too tom thanks hope you do we love you (laughs) okay so until next time um i'm nat and i'm savvy and i'm tom and this is the bondage thanks guys have a good one